from Wyoming Public Media. This, this, this is this is spoken 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 words spoken words. This is spoken words. I'm Micah Schweitzer. I was always interested in communicating to a much broader public because we need lots of people engaged in issues dealing with conservation of wildlife and wild lands. That's how things change. In this episode, we're hearing from Bruce Smith. He's a wildlife biologist and writer living in Montana. But for 22 years, he was in charge of wildlife management and conservation programs at the National Elk Refuge in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Smith's new essay collection, Stories from the Field, traces the love of nature that brought him west from his childhood in Michigan. I grew up and was very fortunate to grow up in the country, in a rural area of Michigan where we had a lake and a marsh behind our house and across the street there was a woods. And so I had that mixture of habitat and the animals that would use those habitats. And I was a neighborhood kid that mapped muskrat houses and went down each spring and uh, counted how many eggs were laid in the red-winged blackbird nests and then revisited them to find out how many eggs had hatched and how many young fledged and although I did things with other kids as far as fishing and and sports and so forth I was the one that was always mucking around in marshes and and just trying to discover how things worked and so that was in me from the very beginning I don't know why but it was in me and my parents didn't discourage it in fact it was a time when as long as I was home by dark everything was cool I should let them know if I was going to miss dinner. His love of nature matured along with him. So all of those things were sort of sort of growing in me and engendering this, this unique sort of a, appreciation for wildlife beyond hunting and fishing and, and, and being able to see it. I just wanted to know more about how it worked, and that became more of an interest in conservation. After attending community college in Michigan, Smith joined the Marine Corps and served in Vietnam. His tour of duty included 11 months of combat, and when he left the Marines, he finally had the chance to move west. My impression of the west is what you would see in sports afield and field and stream and those outdoor magazines, and it would be these snow-covered mountains with sparkling streams cascading down their slopes, and I was a big fly fisherman. I started fly fishing for bluegills and bass and trout when I was uh, 11 years old. And so my image of the West was those kind of places and those trout-filled streams. And uh, that's, that's what I really look forward to being able to experience because I knew as soon as I could, I wanted to go West. And I had wanted to do all of my undergraduate work at a school somewhere in the West. I uh, just couldn't afford it the first couple of years. So, I mean, it was high anticipation when I pointed my Pontiac West. It was, I think it was New Year's Day of 1971 and headed out to the University of Montana. Smith did his undergraduate and graduate work in biology and ecology there. For a while, he lived in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness that stretches between Idaho and Montana to study the winter ecology of mountain goats. It was that kind of opportunity that drew him to the West. Much of the credit for the draw that the West continues to have in terms of the outdoors is because of the vast public lands that we have. Um, national forests, national parks, national wildlife refuges, uh, Bureau of Land Management lands. As long as we can keep those in public ownership and public management where we all have access to them, 
The West is always going to offer this to people who are interested in experiencing nature, experiencing being in the wild. Smith believes, though, that there are fewer and fewer people growing up with this interest. For children growing up in this generation compared to, say, the generation I grew up in as a child in the 50s, the outdoors often represents something different. That's partly because we have become, in the United States, more citified. More kids grow up in the inner city, more kids grow up in suburbs, less grow up in rural areas. You know, a very small percentage of people need to farm anymore or raise um, livestock because farming has become much more efficient. And so people have moved to the towns and the cities or at least villages, and they aren't living out in touch with the land as much as they used to. Then there's a whole issue of electronic devices and everything that goes along with that. So kids grow up in a, in a really different environment. And then if you fold into that, the whole stranger danger issue and, and the fear of, of the wild itself, of wild things, just because kids haven't grown up with that, haven't experienced going out in their backyard and catching turtles or grabbing snakes or doing whatever they might do, watching ants on an anthill, it can be as simple as that. They may not have the connection to the outdoors and to things that are truly wild. He sees writing as a way to introduce younger generations to the wild. He's been writing for the majority of his career, from his time at the Wind River Indian Reservation through his tenure at the National Elk Refuge. No matter what audience he's writing for, Smith sees it as an opportunity to promote the conservation of the West he imagined while he was growing up. So I began writing then uh, about some of the experiences I had, but about some of the some of the aspects of conservation that I thought were important and wanted to pass on to other people. So that long ago, I, you know, in addition to the research that I've done as a, as a wildlife biologist publishing in the peer-reviewed journals, which is a whole different type of writing and, and um, a good way to put yourself to sleep if you want to read a scientific article before bedtime, I was always interested in communicating to a much broader public because we need lots of people engaged in issues dealing with conservation of wildlife and wild lands. That's how things change, and that's how we maintain a constituency for maintaining wild spaces and making sure that legislation is passed that protects it and that we don't have the opposite happen. One of his essays, The Circle, is about his time at the refuge. One of the most noteworthy and programs that are in the public's eye at the National Elk Refuge is the elk feeding program, which is the largest wildlife feeding program in the world. But with it come a lot of issues regarding the consequences of gathering the elk together and feeding them, both on the habitat and for the elk themselves. The circle serves as warning to those who would alter the elk's natural habitat, even with the best intentions. Here's Smith reading an excerpt of the essay in which he realizes that human projects have also been impacting the habitats of other animals at the refuge. The return of migratory birds dazzled me with flight and song. Bluebirds flashed from rock to post. Blackbirds and wrens filled the Flat Creek's marsh. Great blue herons again fished stoically in oxbows. And Canada geese tucked the miracle of eggs beneath their breasts. Each year, one pair of geese laid its eggs among grass and wildflowers on the refuge visitor center's sod roof. 
One by one, at their parents' urging, the dusky hatchlings leapt into the void. They fluttered earthbound like oversized snowflakes, then plopped onto water and were promptly swimming, as though each egg had contained an Olympic training pool. Visitors asked why this pair chose the rooftop corner of a bustling building and not an earthbound nest site like more sensible geese. Why a 15-foot-high dive for their hatchlings for swim rather than a waddle to nearby water? The refuge's healthy population of coyotes, skunks, and mink were the likely answer. All were fond of eggs, and a goose's clutch of 8 to 12 affords a fine feast. But skunks and mink were no more plentiful on the National Elk Refuge than most other places. Coyotes? Well, that's another story. Once the elk migrated to summer pastures, coyotes feasting on 500-pound carcasses of diseased and old-aged animals quickly ended. They were back to full-time mousing, hunting uenta ground squirrels emerging from winter dens and eating whatever else these opportunists could find. As it turns out, they were quite good at searching out nests of waterfowl and probably other ground-nesting birds. It seemed these geese were in a perpetual race of wits with coyotes to protect their nests. Every island in refuge ponds and flat creeks meanders was a coveted nesting site, but encircling moats proved no match for at least one wily coyote. National Elk's public use specialist, Jim Griffin, was a keen observer of refuge residents. As Jim drove to the refuge maintenance shop one April morning, he spied a robbery in progress. Through binoculars, he watched the crime unfold. On the tip of an oblong island, a pair of geese had successfully nested for several years. A lone coyote paced the pond's shoreline. Could this be the day the pair's luck ran out? The coyote peered longingly at the hunkered nesting goose, fidgeted, and tested the water with a paw. Suddenly, he plunged in and paddled to the island. Despite the defensive goose's battering wings, he mouthed an egg, swam back to the mainland, laid the egg down, dug a shallow hole, and placed the egg inside. One by one, Jim watched the coyote make Ten such trips. Then the thief covered the eggs and left without pausing to sample his plunder, a hollow victory for two distraught empty nesters. Jim's story only added to my concern about the low hatching success of refuge geese. I proposed a project to the high school's shop teacher. With a design I provided, his students fashioned eight wire nesting baskets. Atop steel posts that we anchored in ponds and Flat Creek's marsh, we fastened the baskets and packed hay for nesting. The next spring, every basket was occupied by a pair of geese. Each pair hatched a brood of goslings. This continued for several years as a new problem arose. The refuge was producing too many geese. Tourists complained about the slick of goose poop on the nearby town park's grounds, now a grand grazing lawn for geese. Indeed, you could barely step anywhere without landing in goose grease. 
flip-flops and bare feet were out of the question. The geese were now winning the war of wits, and I had another life's lesson reinforced. Whenever we tweak nature to our preference or pleasure, there follow reactions or consequences we may not anticipate. I called a halt to replenishing hay in the nesting baskets. The local goose population leveled off. More tourists picnic in the park. Refuge coyotes appeared especially pleased. The next book he's writing is a bit of a change of pace. It's a novel about a mountain goat written for young readers. Smith hopes to inspire in them the same fascination with nature he had when he was a child. I learned back when I was working on the Wind River Indian Reservation that the best way that I could find to move conservation forward was to work with kids. And so I went into the school systems a lot there and spoke with kids and tried to get them interested. And I decided with the mountain goat to do the same thing. So the novel that I'm writing now is a novel for children, 8 to 12-year-olds, and the protagonist, the main character in it, is a young mountain goat and her band. And a journey that she undertakes in which she experiences a lot of the things children do, uh, from loss to uh, needing to feel like she belongs, wondering what her purpose is, what she's good at. But there's a a secondary uh, layer to the book, and that has to do with the issue of climate change and how it's affecting alpine environments. And she becomes a quite important messenger for that. Bruce Smith is going to be a guest on another one of our podcasts, Human Nature. Later this year, he'll tell the story of a helicopter crash in the Wind River Mountains. In the meantime, there are lots more stories about human encounters with nature at humannaturepodcast.org. This episode of Spoken Words was produced by Annie Osborne. I'm Micah Schweitzer, and if you like the show, be sure to leave a rating or review on iTunes. That helps other people find the show as well. Spoken Words is a collaboration between the University of Wyoming's MFA in Creative Writing program and Wyoming Public Media.